Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Hello and welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. I am Diana Marzalek. I'm with Provoke Media here in New York, and I have two guests with me today. Uh, We have Bill Burton, who is the founder and president of Bryson Gillette, which just happens to be our um, recently named, recently crowned global new agency of the year. So congrats on that and happy to have you here. And we also have Bryson Gillette's VP of Public Affairs, Emily Schwartz. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Glad to have you here. So let's start off where it's, it's, we're going to start off with our talk about Francis Hagen, who was a Facebook whistleblower, um, who it was just about a year ago, kind of went public and whose communications Bryce and Gillette handled. Correct? Got that right? That's right. right. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, what stands out to me about Francis and what she did was the, just the immense success she had, you know, so often whistleblowers are fraught with, um, you know, whatever it may be, whether they're who they're coming from, what standpoint they're coming from, um, who they're sort of out and what made Francis so successful? Well, I would say for starters, uh, Francis herself is an extremely talented individual who who's able to speak about issues of social media reform with uh, very uh, direct clarity and um, in a way that I think people can understand no matter how much technology you really get or don't get. So she was the, the first most important um, piece of this puzzle. <clears throat> Second, um, Emily was the, the energy and the brains behind the, the PR strategy, which you know was um, highly successful. There were about 120 uh, unique stories that were written or broadcast in the first week after it was uh, after the she was unveiled, and you know the, her success has really um, been propelled by the fact that she had an important story to tell, and she's continued to tell it, um, not just in the United States but around the world, where where we've seen some some real structural change happening as a result of what she did. So Emily, when when Francis first did she come to you? I don't know how what the course of events was, but but what were the things in terms of a um, communication strategy and a PR strategy you had to look at um, regarding her going public. Yeah, I mean, I think firstly, as as Bill said, like credit where credit's due, that Francis is an extremely talented communicator, and our job was just to kind of hone her vast knowledge and help her translate that to um, the American public, and that really was her goal. Her goal was was to help people understand. Not that, not just that these problems exist, but that they're choices that Facebook was making. And these product, these these problems were were the direct impact of profit driven choices um, by the by the company itself. And so, you know, we were we were always had that in mind of just you know how do we help people understand how this is impacting their daily life. Um. And then I think, you know, it, it can't be underestimated that Francis's disclosures were um, over 22,000 pages of documents. 
And she, um, didn't expect people just to trust her. She, everything came with a, here's my explanation. And here's a document to help you understand that yourself. And, um, you know, I also think it's a testament to the global media consortium that we helped coordinate, um, that they did a ton of research. And so the documents really spoke for themselves and you were able to see and hear through the documents, really the, in, in the turmoil that the company was going through and how ultimately time and time again, profits were chosen over the safety of their users. And she was, I mean, just as an outsider watching her, I mean, she was a very, very attractive whistleblower, right? I mean, not, I mean, just in terms of her depth of knowledge, her, her poise, the way she testified, all of that. And as you said, she was, she had documentation. Um, do most whistleblowers know to get PR people on their side? I mean, is that a, is that a thing? Well, I think that um, she had, she had lawyers who helped her think through the fact that she was going to have a very public facing uh, relationship with the media, with uh, the American public, with the global public, and it might be helpful for her to find some some folks who could help her think about how to frame her answers in a way that could move the ball, um, both with public opinion and also with legislative efforts that were happening uh, all across the globe, where she's seen some real success. And tell me about the um, the media consortium you said you formed. So there was a global media consortium um, that existed. It was about 30 uh, or news organizations uh, globally. Um, that consortium um, via a member of, via congressional um, staffer actually ha had access to the documents. And um, we helped provide some context with Francis on on um, background for for the consortium to be able to understand the kind of trove and all the different lingo within the within the documents. Um, and really, we let the documents speak for themselves. Uh, that was definitely a part of the the kind of strategy behind this of saying, you know, we want to we want Francis to be able to help interpret, um, but really, the the we we put our faith and she put her faith in the journalist to to do their work and they did an incredible job um of helping helping people kind of across the broad spectrum of issues i think that you know the the one that's gotten the most attention over the last year has obviously been the impact of um product choices that that um facebook and others and instagram in particular have made um uh, that have that have been severely detrimental to to kids' mental health. Um, but if you remember back, there were also issues around um, human trafficking. There were issues around ethnic violence in um, Ethiopia and um, kind of removing of democratic underpinning in India. I mean, it was really really broad swath. And so, um, you know, I I give a, a lot of credit to the various media organizations and the journalists for kind of going and not and and deciphering through all of those documents and and helping people understand that the the real variety of issues that we were facing. And the thing that's so great uh, to me for working on this issue in particular is that there the interest was so vast. And it wasn't like, you know, when you're on a presidential campaign or you work at the White House, you've got a lot of people who are interested in, in what you're doing, but sort of as, um, you know, they're a political reporter or they're working on one issue or another. 
and the the depth of it can be pretty shallow. Mm -hmm. um, but in this, there was like real depth of interest and research and reporters, not just in the United States, but also in Europe. And also that we had a consortium in the global South that we were able to put together and really drive some uh, news stories in places where people were really being affected by the fact that Facebook was asleep at the switch on some of the uh, safety issues that they were having. Well, I appreciate the interest, but I also appreciate what you're saying about how the media sort of rose to the occasion and around it, because I don't have to tell you, we're living in a time with disinformation and noise and so many people saying whatever it is, but this was a, a PR effort that had real impact and it was earned media. So it's nice to see that. Yeah, I mean, that was, what was your takeaway in terms of the the media, you know, reaction and and the way it still works, I guess. I mean, PR is still working. Yeah, I think that, that the biggest lesson from this entire um, experience is that media and PR can still be a driver of massive structural change. And, you know, Francis, um, Francis's disclosures and her efforts throughout this last year to, you know, push on governments to, to take action have been hugely successful. I mean, in, in, uh, in the spring this year, the European Union passed the Digital Services Act, which is far and away the most impactful social media legislation that the world's ever seen. Um, it requires transparency uh, in unprecedented ways. And as it gets implemented over the next years, we're going to see a different, we're going to see a lot more um, without a whistleblower, a lot more information from inside these companies that doesn't require a whistleblower. And that's really key to us as a society being able to regulate tech in a way that makes sense for us. Um, and then additionally, in California this year, we saw a huge um, unprecedented law passed um, called the California Age Appropriate Design Code, uh, which is a kid's privacy bill. And it requires tech companies to put their most stringent privacy settings on for kids under 18. And that was, you know, these, these uh, legislative efforts uh, were were driven um, and inspired in a large part through Francis's disclosures. And what is she doing now? So she's still out communicating <laughs> on this issue? Yeah, she is. Um, she recently announced that she's launching her own uh, nonprofit called Beyond the Screen um, mm -hmm. and is working on, on these issues exactly, like helping, helping people uh, better understand the kind of variety of harms. And, mm -hmm. you know, her drumbeat has really been about that these are product choices, product design choices that tech companies are making, um, not content moderation issues. And so trying to kind of move people out of this, you know, should we platform or deplatform or, you know, what piece of content should we pull down on which timeframes and into there are safer ways to build these systems uh, and that's the the focus of her work. And the focus of your work. So I know that <laughs> you and Bryson Gillette has a particular interest in social media and the safety of social media. I mean, where are you seeing social media now in terms of the advancement? I mean, yes, there's legislative changes. Yes, there's Francis. It was in the public conversation. Is it any safer though now? I mean, where is where are these platforms at? Right. I mean, right now, um, hopefully we're on a road to making them safer um, with some of the people that we have the privilege to work with, but um, they're highly destructive and quite unsafe, particularly for kids right now. And it's not that 
they have to be that way, right? Like they could have designed these platforms and these um, technologies to be safety first, right? They could have built them with kids in mind and with the dangers in mind. And if you look at how that's affecting our politics, um, you know, you don't have to be a Democrat or Republican to understand that there's always been misinformation out there. The thing that's different right now is that you've got these platforms where you can spread it faster and further than it's ever been spread before. And so misinformation that may have been snuffed out by mainstream media, even as recently as the um, 0708 presidential campaign, um, now just is you know freely flowing out there in the world, radicalizing people who otherwise might not be radicalized. Um, the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband is a perfect example of this. Like things that would have been just seen as fringe conspiracy theories are now being blasted to millions and millions of people in large part because of the way these platforms have been designed to um, spread fastest the things that are the most um, anger inducing. And then second, because foreign state actors see the opportunity to, um, to spread these things and, and the impact that it can have on uh, crippling our, our ability to run our government. Um, so those things combined mean, means that we need reform and it needs to move faster than it is. But uh, hopefully Francis and, and others have helped to kickstart that effort. Why did it, and I'm speaking as a total late person here. I mean, I understand the wanting to spread news fast and all of that and, and profiting, but but why are we in this position? I mean, these are huge companies, right? They're been around a while at this point. We've already seen the destruction. I mean, what is the reticence to changing them so that they are safer places? Is Ultimately, it it's cash. Profit. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it is, it comes down to money and it is much more profitable to spread fear and hate as quickly as possible than it is to design safer products. I think that, <laughs> I like think it's, you know, the, 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 um, the truth is, is that, you know, I, and, and this is something that Francis has said, and I, you know, we, and I fully believe is that I don't believe we have a free speech issue in this country. We have an amplification issue and mm -hmm. that's what, um, I think we've learned and hopefully, um, over the last year, we learned that through Francis's disclosures, we've learned that the companies know this and that's their, and they're making these choices. Um, you know, we have a new a new CEO at Twitter right now, so he has the opportunity to make some some real real product choices that could have a direct impact on these types of situations, on the spread of misinformation, and how quickly you let something go viral has a direct impact on um, the the uh, on on misinformation and how and therefore a direct impact on on our democracy, on our po political environment, all of that. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of work to be done, mm -hmm. but I think that, you know, one of the great privileges of working in PR right now, and in particular working, uh, at Bryce and Gillette, where we have a whole kind of cohort of, uh, of clients who are, really focused on bringing on attacking this issue and kind of bringing holding to account big tech um, and other actors in this space from all different angles from the democracy angle from you know parents coming together and trying to protect their their kids young people themselves speaking up and saying hey i've grown up with this system and i didn't get a voice in how it operates um so i think that there's a there's a huge 
like what it's, it's like such a privilege to be able to work with that whole group of people and help them uh help them get their their stories heard and i think we've seen this year a big structural changes uh, and hopefully we see a lot more I encourage folks to go watch the film, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, because it really breaks down um, some of the problems with the design of these social media platforms. I mean, for example, on Facebook, um, every bit of content is scored, right? And if you like something, it gets a score of like one, but if you use the anger emoji, it gets the score of eight. And the things that have the higher score are the things that are um, um, put into rotation more and more for more people. So you can imagine what that means on scale and what it's doing to political discourse. No, and when you think about like, I mean, you're talking on a world scale, so it's, it's pretty amazing, um, horrifying, I guess. Um, Emily, you mentioned Twitter and its new CEO. Um, I know at least advertisers um, are starting to wait and see, or, or at least the buyers or the media buyers are, are being advised to sort of wait and see how this falls out in terms of, you know, using the platform, advertising on the platform. What sort of effects could this have for PR? Twitter has been an engine driving uh, the media cycle for you know over 10 years now. So I think Elon can, will, could, sh should change Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. And that is going to have a direct impact on, on the way that our, our media environment operates. And one thing I think that hasn't been talked about a lot that's worth watching is um, how Elon... Uh, deals with bots in particular. There's some research that suggests that um, bots are up to 20%, maybe even more of act all activity on Twitter. So not just the total number of bots, which we've, it's been kind of chatted about a lot, but actually the amount of activity um, is that they're driving, that they're so much more active than your, your typical user. Um, and and so there's some real positive changes that could come if he was able to curb that, um, you know, the spread of the dampening um, the impacts of foreign interference, for example, on on political discourse mm -hmm. um, is is something that could be like dramatically uh, helped uh, through through truly fixing um, issues around bots. But I think it's right now there's a lot of wait and see and um, but it certainly will change it. In this first chapter of Elon's ownership of Twitter, it's kind of messy and he, it feels like he's just using the attention to needle um, progressives and, you know, the, the mainstream media. That's fine. It's his prerogative. But um, as annoying as that may be for a lot of the people on the platform, it is an opportunity through private ownership to make changes that you maybe couldn't make when stockholders own the company. Because if you're making choices... Um, focus on, well, what's the safest, what's the, the best way to build this platform, as opposed to just your, uh, keeping in mind your fiduciary obligations to your stockholders, then you can do some different things where you're not just trying to amplify hate in order to make more advertising revenue. You're actually trying to build a safe platform that can be the town square for um, discourse on a whole range of things in this country and the global community. He didn't. Um, he, he certainly kicked off his ownership, though, with uh, not the best public relations uh, <laughs> move. Um, I'm always like, this guy's got to be smart. He owns like the world. Right? <laughs> like, what was he thinking? But like you said, maybe it's a chance to, I don't know, garner attention or whatever it is. Um, Still could be. We'll see. 
Yes, we'll see. Um, what's your feeling on where the government and regulation should come in on this? I think the government is act is the is the short answer. And there's a lot of I think smart pieces of legislation. I do I do think the government's gotten the U.S. government in particular has gotten significantly more savvy on these issues, and so um, we're no longer in a world where. Um, you know, we have senators asking Mr. Zuckerberg, how do you make money? Um, but and and but there's there's gridlock. Um, and so I think the the passage of the California age appropriate design code shows that you can have impact at the state level, which I think is something to really watch over the next year. Um additionally, there's a lot of uh, litigation moving right now. And that's something to watch. I mean, that was how big tobacco really got reined in. Um, and so I think that's a space over the next year in particular that will see a lot of action. I appreciate what you mentioned earlier in our conversation about the various stakeholders driving the various actions. And you did mention young people who grew up on this and have ownership of it. And they, you see them as a force in, in change in this area in terms of social safety. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think that you're seeing um, our experience. I mean, we've worked with some of the um, incredible young activists in this area and they are passionate and know how to organize. I mean, they know how to use these tools mm -hmm. to create change. And I think that, um, you know, you're also seeing that the companies don't know what to do with that type of um vigor coming from their own most valuable user base. And so I think that there's there's a huge opportunity um and you know our our job is just in the in a very similar role to how we played at Francis is just to try and like channel them in the and help them get the attention that they deserve. Excellent. I can't wrap up this conversation without saying the word metaverse <laughs> and what it means to any of this or if if it's you know more of just the same in a different way in a 3d sort of way or 40 whatever it is i mean it, does this pose new challenges in terms of safeties and concerns or is it the same thing only different uh absolutely and you can see from the design of um the platform that it didn't keep it, it didn't keep safety in mind first and foremost you know i um i i bought an oculus to check it out see i you know i i presume that a lot of conversations are going to be moving to the metaverse and understanding how to communicate there and how to advertise there is going to be a key part of of our job so we're trying to stay on top of it but when i first got it there's a there's an app inside of the um inside the platform that help it's called first steps it helps show you how to use all the different parts of the app the very first thing that it gives you a tutorial on is how to shoot a gun okay well that's a choice um and then you know there's an app um there's one app, I think it's called Big Screen, where it's a social media app where you can go with your friends who also have um, headsets and watch a movie together in a movie theater. But before you go in, you're in a lobby where anybody can be, like literally anyone in the whole world. And the first two people who came up to me just to start a conversation were two 14-year-old girls in England. And I'm thinking, are there any controls that prevent kids from being able to just like talk to total strangers on the internet that's creepy. And also, why did nobody think of this? Do their parents know that they're doing this? It's it's 
you know, there's a lot of, there's more questions than there are answers about what they're doing on safety, but they're putting profit first again. And that's going to lead to some of the same safety problems that uh, we have here in the first place. And it's, when you tell me the story, again, as a layperson, it seems so obvious, right? Like, why are we learning with guns? <laughs> why is that the first thing we're doing? Why are 14 year olds talking to you in a lobby? Like, that's not cool. All right. Well, I always enjoy talking to you and um, in this subject and we'll continue to do so moving forward. So I appreciate the time. Me too. Diana. Thanks so much. And, and we will be in touch. Okay. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.